Welcome back to the Stretch Four Podcast, coming at you all live from the studio here in San Francisco, California. It is Tuesday, May 30th. We're all back from the first big holiday of the year, or the summer, Memorial Day weekend. I hope everybody had a safe and relaxing Memorial Day weekend. I spent the weekend, took a Short trip down the road here from San Francisco to Monterey with the wife and the, and the little one. You know, got a chance to do some cool things down there. Didn't get perfect weather, obviously, but we did enjoy getting out of the city. Got back on yesterday and now back back to Podden. But uh, thank you all for listening to the Stretch Four podcast. Today's show, we're going to take a look at some things that I went, things that I experienced last week, part of the founder journey the highs and lows of being an early stage startup founder. We'll talk a bit about a company, Plastic, which actually went bankrupt last week. We'll get into that and understand what happened there. On the other side, in our kids' corner, talking about fitness and health. And I'm gearing up for a half marathon in July. Been ramping up my training for that and came across an interesting substack related to being a parent and staying in shape. Last but not least, we have a guest interview this week. We have an interview with Matt over at Clockwise. So Matt Martin, co-founder and CEO of Clockwise. Clockwise is a productivity app that helps you make time, helps you get your calendar organized. And he's really, really done well. They've been really working hard lately in building a new type of scheduling software. So It'll be an interesting interview. We got into that. We also got into his life. He lives here in San Francisco. Uh, he's also a parent, two daughters. He's raised, I think, around over $50 million in venture for his business from some of the top brass of VCs. They also recently launched a Clockwise AI feature. So we'll talk a bit about that in the episode. And that is going to be our interview. So looking forward to today's show, getting back at it here. The summer is here in my mind. So we'll try to continue to keep these shows coming out. Thank you all for listening to the show last week. Uh, that's by far been our most successful show so far. So something's working in the zeitgeist of podcasting and interviewing founders and talking about a lot of the early stage stuff that doesn't get as much media coverage. So I'm excited. Got a lot of great interviews coming up and a lot of great insights. So this is episode 10 of the Stretch 4 podcast. Let's get going. So first things first on this podcast this week, talking about some founder learnings. Last week, I was able to spend time at the Finnovate Spring conference. Finnovate is a conference that's been around for quite some time, I think since 2014. We participated in the Finnovate Spring 2013 showcase or 2023 showcase, demonstrated with another 40 or so companies. We unfortunately, Modern Tax, my startup, was not selected in the best of show winners. We did have some great competition companies that are in some cases, a lot further along than us as far as their product, as far as their fundraising and their life cycle. So I was inspired by a lot of companies. Uh, there was a company called Flybits who was selected best of show. I think they raised almost 90 million in venture. They have a personalization platform that enables financial institutions to deliver best in class personalized digital experiences. And it was a very good demonstration. This conference is a conference focused on fintech banking and financial services. It's been around since 1994. We were selected as a scholarship recipient. Overall, great experience for me and my team. My team member, Chris Sayas, Sayas was there with us uh, helping with the demonstration. So shout out to Chris. We ended up acquiring almost over 200 leads across all the different focus points with Modern Tax. So when you think about Modern Tax, we're a tech-enabled API solution to help get access to tax information. Tax information has historically been very hard to get access to, very slow to get access to. With some of the new technologies and with our expert network of tax and accounting designees, we have built out a solution in a way to get access to that information in a lot quicker fashion. So this conference was helpful for us. It really helped us have a open view of how the industry 
financial services industry thinks about our product, unlock tons of new ideas for our roadmap, as well as tons of new feedback for what we currently built out. So I was very, very excited. And I was very, very, had a very, very good time pitching. You know, we had a seven minute demonstration, took it right to the seven minute mark. We were able to get through both an end user experience if you're an individual and you were using modern tax in the background and also if you are a business and you're using modern tax in the in the back end so definitely had a great time startups non-bank lenders large banks community and credit union banks were there a lot of venture capitalists there a lot of strategic large corporations actually our highest interest at the event which kind of gives that signal of always trying to sell to the enterprise, you know, some strategics and large corporations really like their demonstration. And probably at, when you think about the ranking, they had this kind of cool tool they used to allow you to rank who was most interested. So they basically applied some, you know, logic to the fact that if someone was in your, was at your pitch, right, that's one kind of, you know, level they were like came to watch you pitch, but also if they came to your booth, also, if they opted in to be reminded about your pitch is also a level of engagement. So we had the top most engaged people there for our conference were from two Fortune 500 companies. So we're very excited about that. And we hope that that continues to matriculate and develops as we get ready to ramp up into the summertime. So that's the good side. And the good learning is try to get to conferences or industry trade shows, try to present my rule of thumb is if you're paying, if you're paying to play, you should be on a panel. You should have a very well located trade show booth, or you should be able to demo your product. If it's free, like it was for us, definitely try to get in front of as many people as you can. I will say Finnovate has been of all the conferences that I do go to. They were the best at allowing you to track the leads that you were getting. Uh, so I have a dashboard now with all the folks we talked with all the folks that were interested, all the back channel conversations we had with those folks. So it's super critical. And it was just me and Chris uh, say yes, that were there. So we only had two people on site, but we were able to gather a lot of data around who was interested. On the downside of the demonstration, I will say this. One of the things I've learned as being a founder of a company now, this is my third company, try to work with customers that already have products in market. Uh, when you work with companies that are in stealth mode or trying to be kind of not trying to expose what they're doing or not really trying to make a name for themselves yet, you do run into a lot of issues. Uh, lots of these companies are very, very dogmatic in evaluating products and evaluating services. And what you learn as a startup founder is the quicker you get your product out in the market, the quicker it gets in the hands of actual users, the better you are. And secondarily, when you work with companies that are in stealth mode, when you work with companies that are still not ready to go yet, you always find yourself playing this like dog and pony show because these sometimes can be customers that are very, very, you know, aggressive with wanting to see and use your product, but then they don't match that aggression on the same end, right? They're not deploying it across tens of thousands of people. So they're kind of in the play state and everything that they give you, everything that they kind of tell you, they, they want everything to be kind of under this like this like level of, of, of transparency. And, you know, I've made mistakes in the past, but this this one, you know, in, in particularly with our demonstration, we were trying to obviously validate to the in, you know, to the customers or to the prospects at this event, how our product works. And we thought what we had was a good use case. We let something slip out that probably shouldn't have been included in our pitch. And we had a customer that is actually in stealth had a fit about it. And so it's a very much a learning experience for me, because if you have a customer that's in market, their product is out there, they're actually using it and deploying it. They're never going to have a problem with you kind of using them as a as an example for your product. Right. It's kind of like a two in street. Right. Like we demonstrate the use case of our product within your system, and you can leverage demonstrating our how you're able to get what you get through our platform. And that's like widely understood in corporate America. Companies do that all the time. But when you have companies that are in stealth mode or maybe first time founders, people that really don't understand, like nobody gives a fuck about your stealth mode product, 
it can be difficult. And so that was a learning experience for me. You know, I take it on the chin. We're still moving strong, but everybody is not really ready for what startups really are. A lot of people still like to live in this facade of stealth startup. If you go to LinkedIn right now, it's pretty, pretty fascinating. If you go to LinkedIn and you type in stealth startup, it's like there's such a large amount of people that are in this bucket, right? It's like, it's almost like the majority of people that are doing startups. It would be a, it would be a 13,000 person company. And, you know, whether, you know, if you are a stealth founder, no, no digs, but just like get your product out to market. Like one of the most real things that you feel when you're a founder is shipping shit and getting it out and seeing what people think about it. Because you really find out a lot about yourself, your team, your product and everything. And so I see a lot of founders just sit in this stealth mode. And some people, you know, especially in the Bay where there's so much money, there people work at all these big companies and they, you know, it's like this whole game of like people trying to get people that are working at big companies to start things. And like, I don't think it's bad to be in stealth mode for like a couple months until you get your footing. But like, you got people that have been in stealth mode for five years, right? Like, and, and it's, it's, it's kind of like, what are you really doing? What are you building? I think there should be a cap. Like you should, LinkedIn should say, I'm in, you can be in stealth mode for six months, but after that, you got to actually say what you're doing and be public. And I think it's, it's, it's kind of very much in, intriguing because you have two worlds in startup land. You have the stealth mode world. You have the world of just the back channel world of, oh, they're working on something crazy. They can't talk about it yet. And really it's just a product that like 10 other companies already have in market. Right. This is my case for, for the, 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 what I'm talking about. Like there's 10 other companies doing exactly what you're doing that are already in market, already have customers and already cranking. And then there's the build in public type folks. Right. So I would almost, I honestly was like two years ago, if you had asked me, I would have probably been more of a fan of the stealth mode people than the build in public people. But I think it's flipped. I think it's flipped because the market is clearly. It is rewarding people who ship and get to market anything. Like we look at the fastest growing product in the world in the history of technology. OpenAI is clearly a product that was shipped before and it took them a long time, but their end product was not perfect, right? People still used it. So I do find it honestly harder to work with people in this mode. So many of these people come to me because like we're a startup. And so if you're building anything around tax or data, like you might hear about our company through back channel and you want to come to us and you want to say like, can you do this? And then like, I'm always like asking the question of like, is your product in market? And sometimes I'm maybe not as firm as I should be, but it's like, if your product's not in market, like there's no point for us to talk or have a conversation because at the end of the day, it's going to be three, six months before you even really get value out of our product. And you're going to waste a lot of my fucking time. So that is something that I learned through this presentation, all the companies that we talked to that, that were at this event, they had products in market. You could buy those products. You could use those products. And that makes all the difference in this uh, ecosystem. So that's my rant. So if you're a stealth mode startup, no diss, but get out of stealth mode. Ship your product, get it in market, see if people like it, and then you can iterate, pivot, or whatever down the line. Moving on to the next topic, company that I actually have used in the past six months. And it was funny because I used this product and it was a little bit harder to get get going than I would have thought it would have been for a product like this. So the company is Plastic. Plastic files for bankruptcy and they inked a deal with a company called Priority. Plastic, we're talking about it because this is a B2B focused podcast and Plastic was a B2B payments business. It had a last valuation of around $480 million in a now canceled SPAC deal. You know, really why this is important is because a lot of B2B players as well as B2B fintechs, I mean, I was just at Finnovate, which is a fintech financial institutions conference. And one of the biggest things you hear more is like consumer finance is, is, is struggling. But this announcement shows that B2B businesses can struggle as well. 
I think the first thing that plastic became known for was this credit card to ACH payment model, which already obviously is a default risk. It's why you don't see that offering. It's basically you can pay someone in, with a credit card and they can get paid with ACH. And this company was kind of designed to be the arbitrizer to kind of originate those types of payments and make money on the on the back end. Officially, they are billed as an SMB credit card payments company. They'd raised about $140 million in funding over their lifetime from some investors like Kleiner Perkins, B Capital Group, and Top Tier Capital. And it didn't work out. And I don't think it's anything you know bad about the company. I mean, startups go out of business all the time. It's a part of the game. The market changes. But I do think that it is a, it is a very another signal for the small business market, right, where if you are serving small business owners, I think generally they're considered more risky. And so building products for them can be much more difficult. And you, you, you take on a, a little bit more complexity than a lot of times a lot of people want. You know, Elliot Buchanan, who's a guy I had the chance to meet a couple of times here around the city. This guy, you know, he was at this company running this company for, you know, quite some time. You know, he's been at it for about 12 years with this model. And it looks like it just didn't work out. Funds weren't there. And it's unfortunate. These are realities in the startup ecosystem. They happen, won't be the last, not the first. But definitely plastic had a market. I think there is a market for this payment arbitrage that sometimes many business owners face, you know, in my case, you know, making payments on a credit card that, that people wanted to receive on an ACH, which I don't think there's anything wrong with as long as it's being done in a streamlined fashion. But in this case, unfortunately for plastic, they weren't able to get to market. They weren't able to get market on the next round of funding, which was the SPAC. And they're being sold for pennies on the dollar based on the valuations and historically what they'd raised. So the learning is, as a startup founder, revenue is always king in these payments businesses, uh, definitely lower margin. So you have to really be risk averse in those areas. And it seems like with fintech, specifically B2B, you're going to have to move even up market, right? You can't just be selling to every small business and, 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 and expect it to be a profitable business. Last topic today before we get into our interview with Matt and Clockwise at Clockwise. Wanted to shed some light on a content piece I came across from the new fatherhood substack. So obviously I'm a father, son's about 15 months old, announcing it here on the podcast. My wife and I are expecting our second son in October, growing this Parker family, this Parker empire. It seems like every year now, <laughs> but I think one of the things that this piece that I came across was, was in fitness and in health, which was a partner piece from Kevin McGuire and Jeremy Keene, released it on LinkedIn in the show notes, talks about running. Running is something that I've actually started to really do more, like preparing here for the SF Marathon in July. So I've been ramping up my performance and my training. Uh, targeting goals of targeting anywhere between a 930 to 945 mile average mile. So right now I'm kind of hitting on around a 10 mile clip. I'll do around 945 to 950. So trying to continue to shed uh, seconds off my mile. I'm not really like an expert, like supposedly now I'm knowing I'm supposed to start these races off short, slow and, and begin to gain steam over time. So that will take an adjustment for me. But this piece was very interesting because it talked a bit about running and how it became a part of this gentleman's life and like how it's always been a part. But it was like it kind of really hit me because, you know, I played college basketball. We were up the track every morning, 6 a.m., two, three days a week running full on sprints around the track. Right. Like I think at that point, like guys on the team would do like six 615 miles. I think maybe we had a couple guys doing sub six miles like on the basketball team. And I was probably, I think peak around that time, I was around a 730 mile. And so running was something I never loved. I still don't think I love it today. There's another, if you I'll also link this kind of David Goggins, who I'm not a David Goggins snob. Like I, I like some of his stuff. I don't agree with 
all of his stuff, but you know, his day-to-day routine kind of makes sense where he's like, I get the running out of the way every day because it's what I hate the most. And I do think running, especially as a parent, it is kind of like something that I, I correlate with being a parent, right? It's like every day you can't get to the gym. Every day you can't do two hours of fitness and, and weights. Now I try to get as much of that in as I can, but I do realize with my weight as I get older, it is harder and harder to maintain a weight, right? Like I had gotten up to about 250 at a certain point. I'd like to be in a 220, 225, 235 range, right? Like that's consistently where I want to be. And I want to keep that, right? Like in my mid thirties, I want to be able to say like, I'm anywhere between 225 to 235 any given time of the year as I get older. And I realize as you get older, it's harder to maintain that, right? Metabolism gets slower. Uh, you put on more weight. And I think running is something that as much as I don't like it, it's something that's like, it's like basic physical conditioning, right? It's like you, like all humans could do is run, you know, since the beginning of time. And so I think keeping a consistent running regimen has been super interesting for me to build because I've never been a long distance guy. Like, I mean, I'm coming up on, I'm at about 10 and a half miles a week on my big, on my long run. And I've never ran more than that. You know, each week sequentially, it's my longest run. And I'm realizing like, how do I feel after a nine mile run? How do you feel after a 10 mile run? How am I going to feel after a half marathon? So it's very interesting. This piece highlighted it, it correlated it with fatherhood and just how this individual, Jeremy, got super fat. You know, like I think one of the harder things to just say is that a lot of people are just fat and that's just the fact, (laughs) you know, as you get older, you see more and more fat people, but there's a point where you don't, there's a point where people who are overweight or fat just aren't around anymore. And it's an unfortunate circumstance. So I think building a a runner's habit, building an ability to like run 10 miles is something I think is really important for me at least because you just don't have the time to, to con- you don't have the time, right? It's like, if I go run 10 miles, it's going to take me an hour and a half and then I'm done. A lot of times going to the gym every day, which I still try to do a lot, is difficult. So this is a very interesting piece. It's like, this is something that just came out of nowhere, right? I wasn't really looking for this resource. So I wanted to highlight it. I'll share it in the show notes if anybody's looking for inspiration on just trying to maintain a level of fitness that allows you to do other things like be a parent, run a company, being even at like this fintech conference last week, you're like walking all over the place. You're moving around. Like you got to kind of be at a certain level of fitness to even really just do life. So it's quite, quite deep piece on running and how this guy kind of reshaped his life just on running. So I'll link that to the show notes. We got the interview with Matt Martin at Clockwork. Excited about that. Thank you all for listening. This is Matt Parker. For podcasts, I have a guest, Matt Martin, who is the CEO and founder of Clockwise. Clockwise is helping you manage your calendar and stay on top of your calendar. And they have built all types of tools Obviously, we'll get into some machine learning, AI-related stuff, but it's a product that is driven to help you optimize your life. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. And uh, this will get confusing for all your listeners as we go, Matt, 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 Matt. Yeah. Matt and Matt, right? First, first guest with the same first name, and I, I go with Matt, not Matthew. Great. Great to have you on the, on the show today, Matt. Maybe, I think, to kick it off, obviously, your background, and we'll get into that, but I would love to you t- to talk about, I know you clockwise is helping you optimize your calendar. And so I think this is something that has become very, very important as we manage our time. How do you approach your day-to-day life? Like how much time are you optimizing and blocking off of your calendar? Are you like avoiding things like social media and, and, and distractions? What is your approach to to optimizing your calendar on a day-to-day as a founder CEO? Yeah. So, you know, people might be surprised that I'm not as rigid as they might think. So, I mean, part of the premise of clockwise as we started is that one of the obstacles to getting the time that you need to get your job done, assuming you're motivated to your work, which is a different issue, but assuming you're motivated and you want to accomplish things that are higher importance in your work context, 
one of the primary blockers that people are asking of your time constantly. And so time has kind of entered over the last 20 years into a shared space. And, and it's kind of weird and counterintuitive because, you know, for me, it's how I spend my day. It's when I get to see my kids, you know, it's highly personal. But if you don't help to manage how other people have expectations of your time and what they're asking of you and how to flow that, that's where things can really start to break apart because you you start to get that feeling of being on the hamster wheel of constantly trying to keep up. And so uh, for me personally, stepping outside of clockwise as a product, what I try to do is I, A, how deep do you want me to go, Matt? Because I could go on this for a while. <laughs> I mean, go as, go as deep as you feel like people, uh, All right. people would love to hear. I'm, I, I'm a, I'm a productivity nerd. Channel your cow Newport, you know, yeah. where you read All that, right. where you got stuff, channel that for us. I love it. All right. So I am obviously a productivity nerd. So uh, I'll try to keep this engaging and not bore you. But it starts first from thinking critically about what is kind of the average flow of your week. So you want to you wanna take a look at your, at your calendar. And depending on your role, if you're a manager, if you're an IC, if you know, you're a manager of multiple teams like I am, look at kind of the cadence of how you want your week to operate. And so I, you know, we at Clockwise, we have a Monday morning meeting every week with the whole team. We have demos on Friday and I have Thursday as kind of my staff day. We have a staff meeting in the afternoon. And I try to hit one-on-ones with each member of my leadership team. I try, although I bend to customers, I try to make Tuesdays about customer meetings. and I try to keep Wednesday largely open. And so that kind of forms like the general structure of my week. And then obviously things don't stay that way. Every Sunday night or Monday morning, I send my team an email with what are the, how am I doing? Red, yellow, green. What are loosely the top three to five, sometimes maybe a little bit more things that I'm focusing on that week. And then, you know, once you kick that off, I also report in that email on how the last week went, you know, what are, did I accomplish those things? This helps with communication with everybody else and expectation management about where I'm spending my time. It also helps to share some alignment. You know, if I have a task with somebody else or coordination or somebody's wondering what I'm doing. But for me personally, it's also just a nice ritual to sit down, think about what I need to do that week. And then I look at my calendar to see, you know, do I have time to do that stuff? You know, do I need to, I'm, I'm not, this may surprise some folks. I like time blocking. I'm not a hardcore time blocker where I go, you know, this is where I'm going to do this task unless it's really regimented. It's like a board meeting that I, you know, I need to get the slides out or something like that. I, what I like to do more is kind of, you know, finger in the air, look at how much heads down time I have in the week relative to what I need for the project work. If it's more about meeting with folks, great. Let's get those meetings on the, on the calendar. If it's more about heads down work or I need to think through strategy, let's just make sure that I have enough focus time in my week to do that. And I'll, I'll make sure that that time is allocated as such. Now, best laid plans, sometimes it still gets eaten up, but at least I start the week with knowing that I have approximately what I need. And then as people take that time away from me, I can be more critical about, hey, is this higher priority than what I've already allotted it for. Um, and sometimes it is, you know, and sometimes that means in my next week plan email, I say, you know, I didn't get to this, but it's because I did this other higher priority item. So that's kind of the general outlines and contours of how I organize my own time. No, that's amazing. That's, that's great. I think that that puts it in plain, in plain sight. You mentioned board meetings, just, just a question. How, how do you structure around that? You all yeah. have raised a few rounds of funding now from some big names. I'm assuming board meetings are quite critical. Are those on a monthly basis, quarterly basis? And how do you organize that? And, and so when you do head into that, you have all the information you need and you're, you're optimizing around being highly transparent about the business and where everything is. And, and how, how strict is, have been board meetings been for you in your experience? Yeah. You know, so we're, we're kind of in a tweener phase for this where in the early days of board meetings, we've always been relatively formalistic about our board meetings just for good habits and hygiene. But in the early days, it's a little bit more about like they're a little bit less critical because you have less kind of company management issues and it's more about issue spotting. And honestly, a lot of early board meetings, at least for me, are beneficial internally and less about the board being itself. It forces kind of a rigor and cadence of checking in. And then at later stage, it becomes much more operational, you know, 
you have a comp committee, you have a compliance committee, you have auditing, you have other, you know, you have people that you really need to report out to and get a good view on. We're kind of like somewhere in between that right now. Our board meetings have gotten a little bit formalistic, but I start with just to broaden your question a little bit. I think it's really easy to lose sight as a founder, especially in the early days that board meetings are for you. Like they're, they're, they're for the company. They're, they're what, they're not to go and make a board member happy. They're only valuable if they're valuable to the company. And I, I was not good about that in the early days. And I still don't think I'm great about it because, you know, your board is largely comprised of people that you had to pitch to give you money. And so there's this weird shift that happens where it goes from, you have to impress them. You have to show them, of course, everything, honestly, authentically when you're pitching, but in the best light possible, you're trying to sell, you're trying to get them to, you know, buy into the company and then it switches and they're a member of your team. And that switch can be easy to lose and board meetings can become performative where, you know, you're, you're going and you're basically repitching the same people. And that I think is one thing to really watch for um, and make sure that they're useful to you. And so we, one specific example of this is we used to have board meetings on basically a 10 week cadence because I got advice from a board member and, and I think it's good advice, which is like, there's something about around 10 weeks where like, it's just a bit about two months where if you're an outside member, who's only popping in that free, like, that's like a, the maximum amount you can extend while ki- still keeping context in your head as an outside board member. And so it's like, all right, you know, 10 weeks sounds like a good cadence. But man, 10 weeks is just off of the quarterly cadence. So internally, it becomes this weird kind of cadence of production of materials. Cause yeah. like we, you know, we have a quarterly kickoff, we have quarterly planning, we have yearly planning, and then the board meeting sits on top of that as a cadence. And so I kind of said at one point, just nuts to this, like we're just gonna do it quarterly because that fits in with us and it, yeah. it creates less work, it creates less, you know, it's still a lot of work, but it creates less duplicative work. So that from a cadence perspective and from a kind of a ethos perspective, that's where we're at. I'm happy to dive deeper on anything related to board management, though, it's of interest. That's a very interesting um, topic, but maybe transitioning, you know, getting into who you are as a person, right? Like you started Clockwise in 2016, but prior to that, you worked at Related IQ, which was acquired by Salesforce. But even further back, you were kind of on the Minnesota political scene. You had a publication called MN Publicis. That was something that got you started. Maybe talk a bit about that and how, draw those correlations to kind of where you are now. I mean, I was a political science major myself. Now I'm in Silicon Valley starting companies, yeah. creating content and media. Maybe talk a bit about that trajectory and how how it's benefited you as you deal with like things like board. And, and you're, you're essentially like, I feel like startup founders were kind of like politicians, right? Like we're trying to pitch our thing to customers, to investors, but then we're also trying to like, show that we are physically responsible with the allocation of money that we get. And we're also trying to prove that with things like that. So maybe talk about the correlation of politics and in now into the Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. My, my background is a little bit funky. It certainly would have been much more economical from a time and money perspective just to get a degree in computer science and skip law school. <laughs> Cause I don't, I, so, so look, like when you look at my trajectory, I think it says more about me then it says about the skill set I've developed to be where I am. And, and what I mean there is like, I'm, I'm as corny as it sounds, I'm a lifelong learner. Like I, I like learning about new areas. The reason that I, the reason I got involved in tech and got involved in politics are both kind of weirdly interrelated just from a personality perspective. Like I, I really like driving change and driving impact to people. And on the tech side, I mean, I take it with computers, like it's not represented on my resume, but like I was always uh, a computer nerd. You know, I, I built websites in the, you know, in middle school and through the nineties and built gaming computers. And like, I, I always loved that side. And there's something about the creative element of being able to put fingers to keyboard and push something out in the world that actually impacts somebody. And it's a much, I think we have to be humble in the tech community mostly it's a much smaller scope impact, but much higher speed than politics. Politics can be a much larger scope impact, but it's much slower. And it's also much less creative by design. I mean, you know, democracy is designed to have checks and balances that kind of skew towards what the widest percentage of the populace uh, needs and wants. 
And with software and tech, you can kind of take a moment of passion and try to develop something that's much narrower, but much more driven at driving an impact in smaller scale towards people on a regular basis. And so it's a little bit of the same motivation. It's a little bit of just me being curious about stuff and, you know, running at different things until I figured out where my real passion is, which is in building companies. But the skill set overlap, I have to admit, is it's it's minor. Uh, like the like the actual law school learnings that I had. I mean, I'd, I'd like to pretend that I use my legal degree for document review, for contract review at Clockwise, but like, yeah, you know, we have people who are actual lawyers do that. So you know, it's like it's helpful that's handling all your all that stuff. You're not really. The last thing you want to be doing is playing lawyer when you're a startup founder. Especially, life. especially one that has no corporate. Exp- I mean, I was a litigator, so like I did business litigation. I don't like corporate side. I don't know as well, and I haven't yeah. practiced in twelve years. So it's like you pat you pass that on, and, and the the Wilson Sonsinis and Fimwits make <laughs> that's right. And then you and then your eyes pop at the bills, and you're like, yeah. okay, maybe I should use my law degree. But. Yeah, that's where that's where legal is like. It's like great, like legal. I'm, I'm all my you know eyes are dotted, my T's are crossed, my money's raised, and everything. And like, and then you get the bill, and you're like, wow, like this is why you know you maybe I could have kept corners and saved you know hundreds of thousands of dollars, but that's the process of being a uh, you know startup founder. But again, maybe maybe that takes us to our next segue with Clockwise. I'm sure you all and I know you guys are utilizing AI things like legal. Are kind of you know professional services seem to be the first place that or the first thing that is going to be disrupted. Obviously, knowledge workers, engineering. Uh, how have you all like you guys have been going at it since 2016, when before AI was kind of primitive. I mean, OpenAI really got started in 2016, so that's a, a seven year trajectory. Now it's at the top of every news cycle. It's the biggest buzz in Silicon Valley probably since. I think it's even eclipsed crypto at this point with just the amount of time and attention and money that's going there. Talk about the trajectory there and how AI first is one useful for your product. Automating a calendar seems to be direct use case, but also just the boom bust cycle of AI and how what you think about it in today's terms. Yeah, I, this is a this is a topic that we've been thinking a lot about at Clockwise. We actually just announced on Monday and uh, you know, knowing that the recording will probably go out a little bit later, that was Monday, May eighth, a announcement about Clockwise AI. Um, so we're we're investing in this directly. But outside of, and I'm, ha- I'm more than happy to talk about anything Clockwise. But outside of Clockwise yeah. itself, it, it's interesting. That, yeah, that that period of time over which Clockwise been has been developed. So we did get started in in very late 2016, and at that time, I don't know if people recall, but there were a couple companies like X.AI, Clear yes. Labs. Yep. They're trying to build, and for people who aren't familiar, these were companies that were trying to build a digital assistant. So you'd have like, I forget the names they use, but they actually gave them names. Amy, I think Amy was the first name. Yeah, the- I think yeah. that's right. Yeah, Dennis okay. Mortensen. I've talked to him a few times, but it was like Amy and just plug it into your plug it into your email and yep. schedule your calendar. It was pretty fascinating that that was happened seven years ago. Yep. Um, maybe a little too early, but. Yeah, and that's the thing. I think it was too early. I like Dennis and his team. They're they're awesome. I mean, uh, I have a lot of respect for what they were doing. I think their vision was probably correct, but the technology wasn't there. Yeah, and they learned that the hard way. I mean, they had to do a lot of human side, and they just couldn't quite crack it. And I'm sure Dennis has very interesting stories about the why. But we started Clockwise with that happening, and so our perspective was. We do not want to anthropomorphize clockwise. We do not want to create an assistant. We do not want to create the expectations that clockwise operates as an assistant. And so clockwise to date has been something that you plug your calendar in, you can OAuth, and we analyze the calendar. We do a lot of hard, heavy lifting in terms of analyzing what means are at bad times, helping you get the better schedule, but you're always in control. We never, we never create an interface where it's like, you know, text clockwise what you want to do and we'll do it. It's we'll surface conflicts, we'll surface bad meetings, we'll help you get them flexible, we'll help you get a better schedule, but we're always, we're an agent acting on your behalf, not an assistant. And I think finally, so I'm a, just for context for guests, I won't get into the political side of this or throw any shade, but I was not a big believer in Web3 or crypto. Um, I'm not somebody to jump out of hype cycle quickly. I think generative AI is a, 
as big of a breakthrough as people are making it to be. I think it's it feels it has similar vibes to the early days of the web. Now there are huge differences. The early web and why I found it really fun is a bunch of nerds with no money testing out what's possible, largely sharing ideas. You know, it's crazy that even the browser was created from a space where you could always view, view the source code. You know, if it was a corporate uh, entity, you'd never have done that. Where AI is coming up in age with tons of money in the dominant industry in our economy with huge players vying for it. And so I think it's it's a seismic shift, but the underlying currents are very, very different. And so it's tough to predict where and how this will land. But for us, we see now, six, seven years later, the opportunity to create that calendar assistant because the generative AI, I think, is almost good enough to do that. And specifically with how it interacts with humans and reasons and, and communicates. The scheduling side requires Clockwise's advanced scheduling engine because the, the generative AI is just, they cannot, A, they don't hook in directly to calendar yet, but they also don't have the ability to reason deterministically about times. You know, you've, I'm sure everybody's heard about hallucinations and experienced them. The last thing you want is for an AI to hallucinate a time that doesn't work for people and schedule it. And so we are working right now to pair it very tightly by utilizing the strengths, which is communication, talking to you in natural language, be able to reason about your intent, what do you want, and then push that intent to clockwise the scheduling engine. So you can create something magical where, you know, literally where you see this internally, where I can say, I need to meet with my VP product, my VP marketing this afternoon, you know, usually impossible because they're already booked. And the AI will help understand the intent of that. Then we'll marry it with who those people are, suck in their schedules, and then clockwise will reason about what conflicts might be able to move in order to open up that time. It's incredibly powerful. And I think that we're in the very early innings of people figuring out how to leverage the technology. Yeah, that makes sense. And that, that kind of brings me to my next question. You all are focused primarily on the founder CEO persona, right? I think this is something that obviously, at least now, you know, as a founder CEO myself, makes a lot of sense, right? If I could have some tool that optimizes my schedule for internal meetings, but also external, right? yeah. Yeah. whether yeah. it's customers, investors, media, like trying to prioritize, like who should I be talking to? Who should should be able to suck that time out of my, out of my calendar? Is that, you know, is that still, I mean, that's the critical end user of the product. Is that how you all distribute this product to companies and teams? Because now you're an enterprise company, but does it start with the founder CEO? Do they have to really get on board with this mission for no. the, to adopt it? Yeah, no, it's, it, it, it's a very interesting question. Um, our, our seed users, and this is one thing that's been complicated about Clockwise. We're a product-led growth company, so anybody can bring it in to their company. And our seed users, that original user inside of a domain or company, can be anyone. And it, we find that there's a little bit of magic when it starts to be used in concentration by a team. And so it's not necessarily founder CEO. Now, if the company is small, it can be founder CEO and it can be that founder CEO bringing it in and be with their team. And, you know, that could be a 10 person team total in the company, or it might even be, you know, a larger company, like, you know, 50, 70, hundred people and the founder CEO is still bringing it in, but at larger organizations like Uber, Netflix, Atlassian, our larger company we work with, it's often, you know, a software engineer uh, that brings it in or maybe a software engineering manager or a PM. And then because the calendar is inherently viral, you know, you're meeting with other people and we do a pretty good job of spreading across that team. And if the team starts to use it together, that's where the real magic happens because then we can optimize as a whole across everyone. And so if you're an engineering manager, it's similar to the use case you just described, which is it's great for them to help balance heads down time with their meetings, with their one-on-ones, with cross-functional syncs, helping to, you know, they're talking lesser, but, you know, they're talking to some external parties like recruits or maybe sometimes customers. So it's helpful for them to balance, but then for their team, you know, just ICs, they get the benefit too, because now Clockwise is looking out for their afternoon. You know, I like an engineer is like, hey, I want to go heads down for the whole afternoon on this project. We will help make sure that their schedule accommodates that. And so 
it's that the, the seed user dynamic, it usually starts kind of at, at a team level and then it'll bubble across multiple teams and eventually we get consolidated into usually the IT department owns us, but um, we're very popular among R&D departments, engineers, product managers, designers, and then we kind of branch out a bit into operations groups, love us, a little bit of marketing and it, Little, we have we have pockets of strong usage around sales teams, but it requires a li little bit more education because our mm -hmm. product is geared towards providing heads down time. And for sales, heads down time really means call time. Like yep. they need to generate revenue for the business, but it's a pretty general use tool. So we, we tend to kind of spread across the breadth of a company use cases. Mm -hmm. And and with building clock, clockwise with this bottoms up product led growth marketing uh, approach, you all have raised from some top, uh, I would call tier one investors, Greylock, Excel, Co2. How did you design your process around that? I mean, obviously, you when you started a company, there were success stories in this market, which helped. But obviously, productivity has become very, very, uh, there's a lot of companies building productivity solutions. How are you able to establish a footprint that you guys are differentiated in this particular space and how have you continued to reinvent that category and, and, and to build this category defining uh, opportunity? Yeah, you know, it's, so this space is actually filled with more tombstones than successful outcomes. I mean, if you look back at calendaring time management, you'd struggle to think of a single company that has really had an exciting outcome. You know, Sunrise was eventually like, that's, that's what a lot of people think of and Sunrise was, it was, Great application, no shade at all. But yeah, uh, the outcome there. I love Sunrise, but it just couldn't. It just couldn't survive. The yeah, Accompli was probably a, a so Accompli eventually was acquired by Microsoft and then became Outlook Mobile. Uh, mm -hmm. Timeful was acquired by Google. Like there, it's hard to get to escape velocity, uh, velocity with time management because you're working on top of somebody else's platform and it's largely soft ROI. You know, even though. It's an organization's biggest asset, uh, both philosophically and in output, but also just in terms of dollars and cents because they spend the most on payroll out of anything. Yep. It's still soft ROI because it's like, eh, you know, it's kind of squishy. It's not an essential need. And so uh, that actually works against you in this space a bit. But the way that productivity software co companies become large is if they create aggregate value for the business. And so what I think had been... Uh, a big shift in our approach from prior approaches is that we were very business and company focused from day one. And so to this day, we don't have a consumer variant of the product. You can't, and it actually, I think it's probably to our detriment at this point, but you can't go sign up with just a regular Gmail account. Yep. It has to be a Google workspace account. And that's because we're looking at optimizing inside the organization. There are, there are actually technical reasons. It's not just something that we do to screen yep. out people. We need to look at the domain's calendar system and start to look across uh, multiple individuals in order to work. And so I think that initial approach was the primary differentiator is that here's a system that we, yes, it's, it feels consumer-y in that individuals would come in and get benefit from it. Mm -hmm. but it's primarily geared at generating um, aggregate value for a business. And we, we deliver it by looking at the business as a whole and the calendar system as a whole. And that continues to be one of the <clears throat> one of the primary differentiators. And I think our our secret sauce and why we've been successful to date is that we, yes, we are helping to enable individuals get a better schedule, but we're doing that by looking across everybody, at least everybody that signs up for us inside of an organization. And so we're delivering automatically hundreds, if not thousands, of hours back into the organizational schedule. So while that is soft ROI, strictly speaking. We can go to that organization, whether it's the engineering leader, or the IT leader, or whomever it may be, and say, hey, look, we are delivering today tons of value. And if you, you know, you might squint at them and say, well, you know, are they looking at Twitter with that extra time? Or are they actually doing work? Yeah. You can't argue with the vast quantity of the numbers. And so it's like, hey, look, put a discount on it. <laughs> but like our price still works, even if you yeah. think that it's a massive discount. So I think that's one of the big differentiators. Mm -hmm. And really, really tightening up that B2B approach. Always interested to see products like that, that are focused primarily on business emails at, at registration or at sign up. So we have a few, few more. One thing there, few more Matt, 
Uh, just yep. to just to double down on that, I think for folks who are listening to this, who are either founders or inside companies, I think one of the things that you can find yourself kind of wandering in the wilderness for a bit is that productivity B two B productivity software these days is almost exclusively product led. So there's it's rare these days to find productivity B two B software that's sold through a traditional enterprise sale direct to the buyer. People expect that they can come in and try it. People expect they can try it for free. People expect that they can come in and experiment with it. And I think it's very difficult to create a piece of software that's traditional B2B sales if you're in the productivity area. And a little bit of advice for anybody who's doing this is that you don't get lost in the fact that PLG, product-led growth, feels a little bit more consumer-oriented. It's still a B2B business. Mm -hmm. Just the method of acquisition is shifting towards acquiring users by product-led and then scaling those into organizational deploys. And so it does add some complexity in all regards. It's not, I think a lot of people look at PLG and like, oh, this is great. I don't have to talk to people. And it's, it's, it's more complicated, not less in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's great advice for the folks. Most, most of the folks listening are B2B, B2B focused in their, in their initiatives. So transitioning here while we have a few more minutes, uh, a lot of the the technology, the product, the sales, the fundraising stuff is is, is widely talked about. Um, but as a founder, you know, essentially it is a job of performance, and you are kind of essentially classed as an athlete, right? Being able to have the mental fortitude to go days, 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 years, years, years to perform. Uh, you obviously are uh, seem to be kind of in the club of the high output management process from Andy Grove, but also some of the, you know, you mentioned that Deep Work is another book that you've, that's highly affected you. Maybe discuss just how you think about personal performance to, to, to just get up every day, hit the ground running, uh, deliver on objectives. Obviously, you're, we could talk a little bit about the parenting side as well. You have a family, you have a wife, but how have these types of resources influenced you and set up a framework for success? Yeah, I, I think that sport is actually a very good analogy for what we do in a lot of ways, and especially for the founder journey, because I think it's easy for people who are not athletes, and I, I am not one. <laughs> like, I, I love to ride, I love to ride bikes, I love to work out, but like, I am not an athlete. I wasn't in any sort of uh, sports in college, but yeah, people see the athleticism of athletes. I think it's largely, it, naively, they can think it's largely physical. And a huge component of the performance is physical, but it's, it's, you really can't underestimate the mental side of it. Mm -hmm. And when you hear top tier athletes talk about performance over time, you know, there's, there's a great interview with Kobe Bryant where he's reflecting on self doubt. You know, he's, it's a presser and he's getting some questions about, you know, the Lakers have been on a losing streak. And he said, you know, look, like self doubt is just not, it's not valuable because what am I, what am I going to do with that? I have to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to perform the best of my abilities. I've got to go hard. It's a new day and I'm going to lose some and I'm going to win some. And uh, self doubt doesn't help me perform tomorrow. What helps me perform is looking optimistically at the future and what we can accomplish over time. And uh, I think that that mentality of even the best teams on the planet lose games, you know, and it's about continuing forward. It's about learning. It's about improving. It's about improving the, the, how the team dynamics work. It's about improving your personal performance over time and not getting stuck in that cycle of self doubt and really kind of wallowing that it can become. And so for me, I had a, a piece of early advice from another founder. It's, it, it has echoes of Kobe's advice, but it's in a very different, it's in a much nerdier construct. <laughs> he was saying to me, you know, one of the most important things you can do is you're on this boat, you're on this journey, you know, it's open water, it's open sea, it's really ambiguous. There are a lot of waves. And the best thing you can do for yourself is try to control the amplitude of those waves. Because if they're shallow waves, the amount of effort and distance you have to travel is actually much, much lower than if they're really big waves you're going up and down. And what he meant by that is control your ups and downs. Try to control the psychology of this game where you're not, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have really bad days. You're going to have really great days. But, but try to create some mental fortitude and distance around those ups and downs where you can observe them, you can see them, 
but you're not riding that wave the whole distance. You know, another analogy is instead of being on the roller coaster, you're standing on the side watching the roller coaster. And the more you can get to that place where you are creating some distance between you, and it doesn't mean disengagement. It doesn't mean lack of passion. It doesn't mean lack of drive. It just means being able to get to a place where you see and you can spot, okay, this is a bad day. And like, I'm going to feel shitty about that, but I'm going to get up tomorrow and I'm going to keep going. And what can I learn from that? It's a hard place to get. It's easy to say because these journeys are so personal and so much of our personal self-worth and how peers see us is tied up in the company. But I think it's so, so critical. And so I, I start from there uh, for any sort of lessons for a founder is figure out you know how best to manage your own psychology because it's going to pay dividends. And then bridging into Andy Grove, mm-hmm. you know, this becomes more and more important over time because one of the observations that uh, Andy Grove has in his book, High Output Management, is that being a manager is all about creating leverage for the organization. And as organizations grow, speed decreases, but leverage increases. And so as a manager, as a startup founder and CEO, uh, as you grow the organization, the amount of leverage you have in terms of increasing the capacity, increasing the velocity of the organization is going to increase as the organization increases. Because now you're working through other leaders. You're working through leaders who have teams under them. And so really thinking about how you can manage your psychology so that you show up ready to lead and ready to drive that leverage in the most tactically valuable way. It's the easiest thing in the world to wake up in the morning in a bad mood, get in a one-on-one with a leader and be like, you know, why the hell are you doing it this way? You know, this is messed up. This is what you should do. And it, that might be the right advice if you were sober about it, but it's probably not. You know, yeah. it's probably you're, it's pro- probably better to give leverage for giving that person your intent and guidance. And so I think, a, I think a lot about those as paired. How can I show up to be my best? How can I help the team build the culture of resilience? I'm making sure that they're seeing the journey. I'm making sure that we show up and we push as hard as we can for this game, but recognize that we can't win every single one. And then how do I give guidance and intent to those around me so that I create the leverage that we can all be better together? No, that's, that's amazing. And I think that's, that, that gives me good, good vibes on how those, those early, Early in the week, coming off a weekend management discussions where you're just hit with so much shit. It's just like, you yeah, just like yeah. everybody, it's kind of like good to catch yourself. Uh, last last few questions while I have you here. You're you're based here in San Francisco. You're married. Uh, what is your like home setup? Like parenting is, is something that we talk about. I became a father a little over a year ago. So it's obviously congratulations trajectory. Yes. Change its trajectory as a startup founder prioritization of time, you know, really this productivity stuff really comes full cycle when you got kids. Uh, what's your current setup? How many kids like do you all do child care? Are they young kids or, you know, yeah. how, does, how does it work for you? Yeah. So I'm not too far ahead of you. I have um, two and a half year old twins. Yeah. Twin girls. Um, so it's been a, it's been a ride. Yeah. <laughs> we uh, were in a apartment in Upper Mission. If you've been in any Victorian in San Francisco, you know exactly what this thing looks like. It's a single floor with one hallway that goes down back to the kitchen. It's nice. I mean, I feel very privileged, very lucky that we have a space that has ample room, but it's not huge. You know, we're on top of each other. And my wife works as well. And so we do have a full-time nanny, uh, which is huge. Is it it five days work week or is it Weekends, like how, how five day that- work week, five okay. day work week. My wife, my wife's schedule is weird, so there's some flexibility. It's not always nine to five for the nanny, yep. and it's wild for those who don't live in the Bay Area. You may not be familiar with this, but like if you have two kids, mm-hmm. it's the same price. You know, oh. like it's it's like like yeah. the the equivalent of like childcare versus nanny. It's it's pretty close. Yeah. The kids will probably go to preschool this year, but. Um, when we were looking at, it, we were shocked at how expensive childcare was, and we're still shocked. Um, yeah, but yeah. Feel lucky that we can swing it. Not exactly easy, but it makes it work. Uh, and so that nanny comes in. I mostly work from home, so it can be a little bit hectic. But I got to tell you, man, I feel really lucky that the pandemic happened when it did. Actually, as weird as that is uh, <laughs> yeah. to say out loud, because I was one of these founders where I thought I thought it was my job to always be the first person in the office and the last person to leave. Mm-hmm. And like, we're, you know, it's early days startup. Like we're hard driving and we still are, 
but mm-hmm. it, it meant long hours. You know, I was often not home for dinner. Uh, I was off at home late. And uh, being that in the pandemic, we were forced out of that office situation. I learned to yield that flexibility as a benefit. And mm-hmm. I don't think I ever would have gotten out of that mentality. You know, we would have had kids and I would have still been late nights and like it would have stretched us thin and yeah. been tough. And like now, you know, uh, there's some days where the nanny's done at five and Ashley, my wife is still at the hospital and like, I have to stop. Like, there's no choice. I got to stop. I got to take care of the kids. Yeah. And, and I don't, I don't feel guilty about that anymore. You know, I, that's what I got to do. And then I'll come back on later at night. Yeah. And then to your point, it's for some rigor in how I operate, you know, because now I know that I can't just solve the problem by working harder or later. I've got to help other people see the problem. I've got to help delegate better. I've got to be more regimented in my time management. I've got to be, I've got to communicate better in terms of letting people know what's coming down the pipe so that, you know, if I'm out or I'm offline, like they can deal with it. But, you know, I also have the flexibility that I can pop off at five and come back on when the kids are down at, you know, seven thirty eight, and I can knock some stuff out. And so I think the total velocity of the organization is still equivalent. It's just that I've learned how to structure my own life and how to yield the flexibility of work from home to be able to manage the complexity of having kids. Oh, awesome. Yeah, that, that, that's great. Matt, it's been a great, uh, great, great show. Love to hear the clockwise story. I'm excited to try out the product and, and, and test it out. Uh, parting words for the audience. Obviously, they have a business email. Go sign up at, at, at clockwise. Uh, any other kind of um, things you'd like to shout out before we close? Well, of course, you can get clockwise.ai or getclockwise.com both work. Uh, sign up there. Uh, we are pushing out clockwise AI right now. It's on a wait list. So you sign up now. You'll get in earlier. It, you know, it's a fantastic product. You can get free. You can get started right now. Experiment with it. Play with it. It delivers a ton of value. So I encourage everybody to do so. And then, hey, if anybody's listening to the show and they want to connect personally, you can find me on LinkedIn, Matt Martin. Um, shoot me a line. Drop me a line. I'm always excited to talk about the founder journey. It's lonely out there for founders. You know, it's tough. Build up, build up a network for yourself among peers. It's uh, inordinately useful to be able to shoot a text to complain to somebody else who's in your same situation. So I would say it's hard building a company. It's, it's easy to get myopically focused on building, but try to help build that community around you. Even if it's a few friends, it's really, really valuable as you grow. Awesome. Matt, it's been great talking with you. We'll get this show out and we're very excited to learn more about the Clockwise AI product once it gets rolled out for folks. Awesome. Thanks, Matt. This has been fun. Thanks a lot, Matt. Great having you on the show, man. Great interview with Matt Martin and Clockwise. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, Matt. We really enjoyed that interview and, and your product. What's coming up for me here in the next few weeks? Obviously, always the modern tax company is kind of what I do day to day, but the newsletter is kind of what I do in my nights, the newsletter in this podcast series. So definitely the newsletter, stretch4.substack.com is where you can find that at. So like, subscribe, comment, and share the newsletter. Trying to get back into my writing bag of kind of taking a break and really just focus on the podcast, but definitely going to got some new issues coming up. Definitely check out episode nine from last week with Tanvi Surti. Also talked about the new chip accelerators, bankruptcy. So getting great feedback again. That's been our best performing show so far. What we got going on or what I got going on in, in the next few weeks SF Tech Week is here this week. I will be attending a couple events. Uh, three, I think I've submitted to attend, figure out where that goes. Uh, definitely looking forward to the A16Z and Stonks Gen AI pitch competition. So there'll be a lot of uh, gener- you know, generative AI companies there. And then the next week, I'm heading down to LA for a three-day trip for the LA Tech Week. I know I'm definitely going to be at the Culture House where a good friend of mine is a DJ. So I'll be down in L.A. from Thursday through Sunday next week. Uh, and then in June, my other trip that's on the calendar is the on-ramp insurance conference, which is presented by Generator. It will be taking place June 21st through 23rd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. So never been to Minneapolis. Going to go out to Minneapolis for three days next week. We're definitely on the ask side. 
continue to subscribe to the newsletter, listen to the podcast. We'd love your review on Apple or on Spotify. If you're a listener of the show, we definitely love your feedback and your reviews there. Outside of that, that's all we got on the Stretch 4 podcast. This is Matt Parker. Thank you all for listening to episode 10. We got 10 down and we got hundreds more to go. That's all I got. Thank you. Bye-bye.